you to turn again to Romans chapter 7 together. I want to read the whole chapter today. We suggested last time we'll review it again in a moment, but the chapter divides into three sections. We considered the first six verses last Lord's Day. We come to the middle section this morning, but just for the context and the flow of these words that I trust are familiar, I want to read the whole chapter together again. So Romans 7 from verse 1. Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth. For the woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she's loose from the law of her husband. So then if while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she should be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she's freed from that law so that she's no adulteress, though she be married to another man. Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sins which were by the law did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. But now we are delivered from the law, that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin but by the law. For I had not known lust except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. For without the law, sin was dead. I might just pause. Concupiscence is working on being an archaic term. It just is a synonym for lust and the same word underneath uh, some of the other translations in the chapter as well. But it is an evil desire that is put forth here. But verse 8 from the end. For without the law, sin was dead. For I was alive without the law once. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it slew me. Wherefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid. But sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. Now if I do that I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. 
I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. Well, in their reading, we trust again the Lord to add His blessing to the public reading of His Word. Let's do bow our heads and hearts together. Our Heavenly Father, today we again gather around Your Word. Lord, what have we to come together for if it's merely the opinions of a preacher that we come to hear? So we ask that You'll give us faithfulness to what You have said, and that by Your Spirit You'll take it up and again apply it at every point of need, and give us the grace and help to preach and hear. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we come today, as we said, to the middle section of Romans 7, we're just reminded that in this chapter of Scripture, we have one of the most important treatments of the law of God and its relation to the believer that we find in all the Word. Last week, we found in verses 1 to 6, that the law has a lifelong dominion over us. It holds a claim upon us that can only be broken or released by death. And death itself is connected to the law because it is the penalty that is due to lawbreakers. And if we could elaborate a little further, actually, that's why death is eternal. We've sinned against an infinite being. We have broken His law. We don't possess the ability then to finish paying for our sins any more than we possess the ability in our fallen condition to fulfill all the demands of that law. So in our doctrinal language and terminology, as we suggested last week, we call this law, we call this dominion that it has over men, the covenant of works. And we found that it is in Christ in the gospel of Christ, that we are freed from the dominion of the law. I told a couple of you in the lobby last week that it was a great giant text that was supposed to work its way into last week's sermon. It didn't, of all things. I don't know how it didn't get from the page to the head to the mouth to the airwaves, but it didn't. But the whole theme of those opening six verses is even in our title for the message, Free from the law. Christ has redeemed us, freed us from this dominion. As Paul states elsewhere in Galatians 3, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. That's what Paul is saying. That is really in a nutshell, as it were, the teaching with regard to the law in this unfolding of the gospel. But Paul, as has been his case so often in Romans and will still be going forward, he moves to consider possible questions or possible objections that would arise based on what he's just taught. 
And we have in verse 7, the opening of our section for today. What shall we say then? If Christ has freed us from the law, then what do we say? What's the law good for anymore? Well, that's the section that we come to, but perhaps it's good to pause and overview the chapter again because while we said there are many pieces of the chapter, there are teachings within it that even Orthodox and even Reformed Orthodox men haven't all gotten on the same page on. The overriding theme is clear. But as we look at the chapter, one thing they do agree on is the divisions. Chapters or verses 1 to 6 we saw last time. And then in chapter, or verse 7 rather, the chapter takes a big turn. From verse 7 to verse 13, we find that the law, it will be our subject today, convicts of sin. And then in verse 14, the law shows what is good, but it doesn't have the power to enable us to perform that which is good. If we look a little further, I might even suggest in these three divisions, I don't think it's watertight, but it's helpful to the memory. Three C's for verses 1 to 6. Conviction with regard to verses 7 to 13. And then conflict from verse 14 to the end of the chapter. But there's another observation that we must make regarding the chapter. In verses 1 to 6, he's stating the truth that Christ has freed us from the law's claims. When he continues and elaborates then about the role of the law, he answers some questions and objections that would come. His, his tone changes. He begins to use himself as an illustration. From verse 7 to the end of the chapter, there's some 40 times that Paul says the, either I or me. He gets very personal. Now we should suggest here though, Paul isn't engaging in a full-blown autobiographical commentary. Same way we saw last week with regard to the illustration about marriage. Uh, there's, there's a single truth in the middle there. He's not giving a full-orbed biblical treatment of the doctrine of marriage and divorce. Well, the same thing here. Paul's not trying to give every detail of his own experience, but he's speaking from his own experience about truths that are true of all of the Lord's people. And so he again transitions and begins speaking in the first person. There's also an interesting difference that from verse 7 to 13, it is the past tense that dominates. Paul speaks of that which occurred in his past. Then from verse 14 to the end of the chapter, the present tense dominates. And I cast my lot in with those that suggest that in these two sections, Paul speaking in the first section, our section for today, about the conviction of sin that the law brought to him in his unregenerate state. He's already said in chapter 3 as he's working to the paragraph, by the law is the knowledge of sin. We can't be justified by the law. Justification by works is impossible for fallen man, but there's a function for the law. By the law is the knowledge of sin. And he, from a personal perspective, elaborates on that here. And then from verse 14 to the end, he speaks now as a regenerate believer. 
And the struggle and conflict, again, that can find its focus on the law of God. And so here we come today to look at the second, second of these three sections. And I just want to use, I'm thinking, I've been listening to different sermons and it's interesting to see just how the titles stack up in sermon audio, but uh, I don't know if ours will stack up as complete sentences or thought or not. But if last week we considered Christ has freed us from the law or just freedom from the law, Well, today the next statement is this, but the law is good. And Paul here starts to, I say, answer objections. Many suggest that the Jews would have been among those running to Paul with this objection. Well, with what you've said then, what's the law all about? You're putting the law down. Well, it may indeed be the case, but a Gentile could come with the same question as well. If Christ has freed us from the law, if the law doesn't have dominion over us anymore, if that covenant of works isn't hanging over us with its condemning power anymore, then are we finished with the law? And Paul says, God forbid. But the law, he says, is good. And I want today to collect our thoughts around three statements. The first being that one. The law is good. The impossibility of sinners being saved by keeping the law does not in any way suggest or teach that there's something wrong with the law. No, the law has no deficiencies. We will come in a few moments to see Paul giving very vivid description pointed, bullet pointed, we might add, adjectives with regard to the description of this law. The law we find is holy, just, and good. You see, when we understand the Bible's doctrine, when we see the impossibility of men being justified by keeping the law, again, it's not because there's a problem with the law. The problem isn't with the law at all. The problem is with us. All law can do for us now is condemn us. All the law can do for us now is put a great big spotlight on me, sinner. Me, all-worker. And again, even if it were possible, which it's not, even if it were possible for a sinner to come to some point in his life where he could begin perfectly obeying the law of God in thought, word, mind, and deed, none of that perfect obedience can erase the fact that he was born in trespasses and sins. That he was a lawbreaker prior to his fulfilling of the law. And so you can use present tense. He, it's not that he was a lawbreaker and he's not a lawbreaker anymore. He is a lawbreaker because he's broken the law. The law didn't change. The law didn't become somehow suddenly bad. We changed. 
we became suddenly bad. And now that law that was ordained to life, a giant text in this chapter, blind to death. Because it holds that standard of perfection over our heads, if you will. Because that's what God's creatures are obligated to fulfill in order to enjoy His presence. In order not to come under His wrath. And the sentence in that covenant, the sentence of death. And so the first statement I say to you today is the law is good. Paul says quite plainly, the law is holy, just, and good. It is holy in that it is pure. It is completely separate from anything and everything that is evil or in any way defiled or in any way imperfect. It's holy. The law is just. John Murray speaks of this as we, when you have terms and synonyms that are stacked up, it's at that point that you start looking at the nuances. But it's just, it's, it's righteous, it's, it's equitable. It's perfectly right in everything that it states. There's nothing wrong, there's nothing questionable about it. It's one of those things when we come to look at the law written on the heart. One sermon I was listening to had an illustration of a believer who was coming to discuss the faith with atheists in an academic setting. And these were quite bright students. And they suggested, and were holding really the, the, the claim, that there's no such thing as right and wrong. They're just what we make of them. There's no absolute Moral truth. There are no absolutes anywhere ever. And it said that the believer defending Christianity just turned it very practically and said to the most vocal of the students, all right, so someone comes into your home in your presence, murders your father, rapes your mother, tortures your siblings. Is this right or wrong? And the student pauses and he says, well, I wouldn't like it, but I can't say that it's wrong. The only reply to that is, well, you're a liar. Romans 1. Even the Gentiles who have not the law the written Old Testament Scriptures, show the work of the law written in their hearts. These are universal truths. They're manifested throughout history where the Scriptures have come and where they haven't come. The law is equitable. And the law is good. It promotes well-being. Everyone is helped. Everyone is the beneficiary of good when the law is obeyed, when the law is upheld. It's one of the things about the worship of God 
the warped, depraved mind wants to come and say, well, well, who's he that he should be the only one that gets worshipped? Well, because when he is worshipped, everyone benefits. When we worship something other than him, everyone else is hurt. The law is holy, just, and good. And so Paul comes, again, anticipating the thoughts, the questions, the objections. And when he suggests and teaches so plainly that Christ has freed us from the law, he is in no way intimating, he is in no way hinting, he is no way subtly suggesting, he is no way leaving a crack in the door open for someone to suggest anything but the fact that the law is holy, just, and good. The law is good. And so the second statement we make today is this. This good law exposes me as a transgressor. Again, it isn't the law that's changed. It's fallen sinners that have changed. This good law exposes me as a transgressor. Or to use the language of that great summary paragraph, chapter 3, verse 20, by the law is the knowledge of sin. I want to turn up some scriptures today that I hope are familiar in this place. But if you turn with me to the book of Philippians Philippians chapter 3. Paul is giving personal illustration in what we are reading in Romans 7. Let's turn to another place where he speaks of himself. Philippians 3 beginning in verse 4. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, an Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. This is what Paul has said of himself with regard to the flesh, with regard to credentials, with regard to ecclesiastical connections. I mean, he's got a a pedigree. And with regard to his understanding of what is required of him. Touching the law, blameless. Nobody can lay a finger on me, Paul the Pharisee, at all. Well, something changed in Paul's experience. Now turn back with me to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5. Here's where again, I trust that we are getting into very familiar territory. In the Sermon on the Mount, our Savior utters these words. He says, verse 20, For I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, that's where Paul had his lot, you shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. And what does the Lord then proceed to do? If you look in verse 21, if you have a Bible that has, mine has little paragraph settings, this particular one, 
The next five paragraphs of the sermon open with a formula. You've heard it was said by them of old. The first one, thou shalt not kill. And whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you, that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And so our Lord is in the midst of an audience quite familiar with the law, quite impressed with the Pharisees. He takes them to the law and shows them that the law has a a meaning, it has an application, it has a claim that reaches deeper than external observances. You can't just check the box and say, I fulfilled the law because I didn't kill him. You can't check the box until you can say, I didn't sin against him in my mind. You go to the next one. You can't check the box and say, I fulfilled the law because I didn't sleep with her. Oh, the law touches again the mind. And on down and on down and on down he goes. Illustration after illustration after illustration. Five times taking them to show the spirituality of the law. And if you go back to Romans 7, Paul again reading his own testimony. Verse 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? This thing that we're freed from by Christ God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law. I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. It's interesting there that he, he goes to the tenth of the ten words. You remember James' teaching, He that offends in one point is guilty of all. Twice in the New Testament, we've highlighted this once and again. Paul will equate the first commandment and the tenth. He says a covetous man is an idolater. That's where he says covetousness, which is idolatry. You think of Adam and Eve in the garden. I can't remember if I was reading to you or reading this to the students, but from the marrow of modern divinity, running through the whole catalog of the ten words, And how Adam transgressed all ten of them in partaking of that fruit. How they were stirred with a covetous spirit. There's something God has withheld from us. We can eat. The Garden of Eden is ours. Just one tree. Don't partake of that. The covetous spirit the lawless spirit. Paul here speaks of it being found in himself. And he says, verse 8, but sin taking occasion by the commandment wrought in me all manner of concupiscence, all manner of lust, evil desires. For without the law, sin was dead. For I was alive without the law once. You think of Paul and his thought of his life of his being alive, as him being on top of things, touching the law, blameless. But when the commandment came, sin revived. 
sin was brought to life in my understanding. And I now see myself as dead in trespasses and sins. Sin, or the law rather, exposes sin. And if you think, we'll not turn back, but Sermon on the Mount, three verses before our Savior said, Accept your righteousness, exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. You'll in no wise enter into the kingdom. What does He say? I'm not here to talk about the law. That's old news. He said, think not that I'm come to destroy the law. I'm not come to destroy the law. I'm come to fulfill it. What has Romans said? Do we then make void the law through faith? No, God forbid. Yea, we establish the law. You see, friends, the gospel is the only way to give due respect unto the law. The good news is that God who can't change, God's law that can't be changed, that God has found an answer. He has found that which is acceptable to His law. That the law can be fulfilled through another representative through the obedience and death of another Adam. But this good news as it is in Jesus, this freedom from the covenant of works that we find in Jesus does not make void the law. It establishes the law. And here one of the great tasks of the law, and of course it's taken up in the hands and the power, if you will, of the Holy Spirit as He convinces men of sin. As the Spirit awakens the heart and conscience of a man like Paul who thinks he's doing fine and opens his eyes to see what the law really is. Now Christ freeing us from the law doesn't mean the law is bad. It just shows us that we are bad. It shows us how bad we, outside of Christ, really are. The law correctly defines sin. So the law is good. This good law then exposes me as a transgressor Our third statement and last then today is this. In fact, the law is what stirs and reveals the depths of my depravity. If you look here in verse 8, it says, But sin taking occasion by the commandment wrought in me all manner of evil desire. Then we come down to verse 11. For sin taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it slew me. One of the illustrations, manifestations of our depravity is how now we, fallen and depraved, respond to the law. That law that is good and holy and 
just. That law that exposes me as a transgressor, what is it that it stirs then in my soul? Left to myself. What does that law do when it reaches this heart of mine? It's one of the things that will be highlighted in the last section of the chapter. It doesn't stir me to obedience. It can stir me to redefine the law. It can stir me to try and make myself feel better by reducing the law to a capable standard. That's what legalists always do. But even then, there's something about the law that stirs me up. It should encourage me toward love. Because love is the fulfilling of the law. It should encourage me toward that which is good for my neighbor. It should encourage me toward full and rightful worship of a worthy creator. But instead, what does it do? It takes occasion. That's actually a military term. It's used of a base of operations. It's the same word where Paul says, neither give place to the devil. You don't give him a base of operations in your life. If you're getting beat up from a particular direction, well, maybe you've let him set up camp somewhere in your life. You need to get rid of that. But here, the law is like a base of operations for sin in me. Because Paul said, this law comes to me. It manifests what is good and holy and right. But the very fact that it's put in front of me makes me want to transgress it. We've given the illustration. More than one I was reading and listening to spoke with regard to the child. You tell them the particular thing in the room that they're not allowed to touch. You walk out of the room. What do they do? That's what draws their attention. The very fact of the prohibition, the very presence of that law stirs something in the depraved heart. And Paul just lays this out. And of course, this is Paul the Pharisee. This is Paul smitten with conviction by the power of the Spirit. That which I viewed so insufficiently. I had a, a low view of the law of God. Why? Because I had a high view of me. And the Spirit of God takes up the law as it really is and brings it with power to the heart to show me what I really am then I'm broken and Paul say as he does elsewhere I'm the chief of sinners because understanding the spirituality of the law of God I know something I don't know everything Paul could pray with David, Lord, cleanse me from secret sins. The ways that I transgress Your law and I'm not even aware. But Paul could say, I know something of the sins of my own heart and mind. 
And I know far, far more of that than I know of other people's sins. I must be the chief of sinners. No, the law is not something that Christianity, that the gospel pushes away. The law is not something that we say, we're going to get rid of that and we'll take Jesus instead. No, the gospel of Jesus Christ and the believer's freedom from the law as a believer in Jesus Christ in no way diminishes the law of God. It in no way makes void the law. Instead, it gives the law its right place. It magnifies the law. It makes it honorable. It's those that deny the gospel that incorrectly define sin. It's those that deny the gospel that incorrectly define the law of God. No, the gospel of Jesus Christ and our freedom from the law in Jesus is the only way the law is seen for what it really is and given its rightful place. Yes, as we saw in verses 1 to 6, Jesus has freed us from the law. But the law is good. He has freed us from it in that one way in which it had dominion. He's freed us from it as a covenant of works. But He cannot free us from it. He never will free us from it as a rule of life. Because it's holy, just, and good. It's a reflection of God's character. It is the road map for what is love. What is equitable and good for all. And so, no, we don't make void the law through faith. We establish it. Next time we'll come to the closing section of this chapter that probably has more questions about it than any other. We'll not try and answer all those questions because the vast majority are on the same page in understanding Yes, Paul has moved from that past work of the law. Puritans used to speak of the law work in the heart to convince us of sin. But Paul will move into the present tense. And even as a believer who has the work of the law written in the heart now as a a rule of life, not just the condemning power, but yet he, he sees another another principle in his members warring against the law of his mind there we move from conviction as we said to conflict but yet the chapter ends in victory it ends with thanksgiving it is the prelude well to Romans 8 peace with God well I trust the Lord will bless his word this weighty chapter some things difficult some things quite plain
Paul says, yes, Christ has freed us from the law. But the law is good. Let's bow our heads together. Our Heavenly Father, we ask today that something even of reading in your word, the reality of this holy, just, and good thing, stir us. Lord, perhaps with conviction, Lord, if we are in Christ Jesus, that we might also rejoice. What a, what a gospel irony that Paul, who thought himself as touching the law blameless, a miserable persecutor, finally convinced he was a chief of sinners, a heart rejoicing with love even for the Gentiles. Here is the power of God unto salvation. Let us know something of that in our hearts and in this place today we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.